If you're in the mood for sausage and peppers or a cannoli, there's no better time to be in New York City. The San Gennaro Feast has taken over the streets of Manhattan's Little Italy. The annual event has a long history in the neighborhood. In fact, it's now in its 91st year. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. The San Gennaro Festival runs now through September 24th. We recently caught up with a guy who knows quite a bit about the feast, as well as Little Italy as a whole. My name is Alfred Palmer. I'm a New York City licensed guide. I do uh, walking tours here in Manhattan that focus on history and architecture. I have 27 different walking tours, about 27 different Manhattan neighborhoods. One of those neighborhoods is right here where we are today, Manhattan's Little Italy. Uh, yes, it sure is, and this is a very well-known neighborhood, and it's actually this area has just become a historic district. Not a New York City landmark preservation historic district, but a New York State-designated Little Italy and Chinatown historic district, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. So what does that mean exactly, that it has that designation? Well, historic different districts have... Depend. In other words, if it was a New York City landmark historic district, it would be limiting as to what you can do and how you could change a facade. The state and the National Register of Historic Places are a lot less restrictive, and they give out money uh, or tax breaks to the buildings. In fact, that's the way they try to influence the buildings, uh, how we say, not to change, by offering this or that incentive for not changing their facades or their environment. Uh, New York City landmarks preservation laws are a lot stricter, and they don't offer any financial, how we say, encouragement. So why is Little Italy culturally, historically significant? Well, because there were so many Italians living here at one time. That's the general lead. But the idea is it's a little bit of a false illusion, because you just think about one of the biggest buildings here, in, old buildings here in New York City, and that's the St. Patrick's Basilica on Mott Street. That, was, that went up in... Uh, we got finished, I think it was 1815, and that was an Irish church, St. Patrick's, right? Now, that was the original St. Patrick's That's Cathedral, right. right? Now it's a basilia. It's recently, 2010, it became a basilia. Before that, it was just considered the old, uh, it just became a neighborhood church after, I think it was around 1870 when the, how do you say, the cathedral moved up to Fifth Avenue. Uh, and if you notice the wall around St. Patrick's? The brick wall, they built that around the 1830s because there were a lot of nativist mobs that would actually come up to the church and try to dig the graves and throw the bones out in the street. And Marika, how you say, Mayhem, Digger Hughes was the bishop at the time, and he, in fact, used to encourage the people to stand out in front of the church with him when they knew the mobs were coming. But he did one thing that was very unusual for a bishop, a Catholic bishop at the time, and that's why some people actually gave him the name instead of digger use, dagger use. He used to distribute guns to the people that stood with him to stop the mobs from coming up, which would be very unusual for a priest or a bishop to do, yes? Uh, the St. Patrick's, believe me or not, has a long history. And if you go, even if you walk on Mott Street, where the main entrance to St. Patrick's is, you're walking on top of catacombs. Uh, you notice on both sides of the church, or the basilia, there's a, it's a cemetery, yes? But the, they had so many dead people, I guess, they started putting them underground. So the catacombs run under the church and out into the street. And out, uh, under, actually under Mott Street and Mulberry Street. And Pierre Toussaint was buried there. He's going to be canonized a saint in the Catholic religion. And he'd be the first African-American saint in the Catholic religion if it goes through. 
and Cardinal O'Connor was there sometime in the late 1990s. And there was, actually, I got a picture of him home digging up the ground, you know, to exhumate, to take his, his remains up to the old, new St. Patrick's. I had no idea that was underfoot there in yeah. Manhattan. Oh, yes. And, it's, and Pierre Toussaint was a sort, of, a sort of a story in it to himself. Pierre Toussaint was, uh, was a slave, uh, but he was with a French family in Haiti. And they came to move here around 1890s, like that. The head of the family got sick and died. He supported the household being a hairdresser. When the woman died, the my wife died, she, on her deathbed, she gave him his freedom. And by the way, just as a side note, he made a lot of money for the family and for himself after he got his freedom as a hairdresser because it was like quite the thing to do to have your hair done by Pierre Toussaint. He speaks French besides, you know. Um, so, how would you say, he was quite in demand, and the first thing he did when he got his freedom was he went back to Haiti, found a childhood sweetheart, brought her back here to New York, and married her. So that alone, that should make him a saint, I always say. So that was sort of a nice story connected to that. And there's another, there's other, uh, what's his first name? Jamal. You know the Jamal, Morris Jamal Mansion up on... Oh, here? sure, the Morris Jamal Mansion. Yeah. Well, the guy who bought that mansion, uh, the guy Morris was a colonel, he built it in the English army. But Stephen Jamal was a French merchant. He came over here and he bought that mansion. That's why he called the Morris Jamal Mansion. He's buried in the old St. Patrick's, right? But more interesting, his, his wife, she's like a soap opera, was Lisa Jamal. Uh, her name was really Lisa Brown. She came from one of the New England states. She was, they say, uh, the nasty rumor about her is that she was a part-time prostitute. But she married Jamal, who was quite rich, and ended up with all his money after he died early on. And there were stories that she killed him, that she pushed him on a pitchfork, or that he fell from a horse and that she refused to bandage him. There was all sorts of things about that. And she became the richest woman in America at one time, simply from Jamal's fortune, yes. And she married Aaron Burr for the last three years of his life. So I guess she was trying to get respectability with that one. So know. Old St. Patrick's was an Irish church. Oh, yeah. When oh. did the Italians move in? Well, the Italians came in around 1860 in dribs and drabs, 1880 in large numbers. And that's sort of interesting because sometimes people ask me, how come, you know, the Church of the Precious Blood over on Baxter Street and the back of it is on Mulberry Street? They say, well, how come that church was built in 1890? How come all the Italian immigrants didn't go to St. Patrick's? Well, there was a culture clash, if you will. See, the Italian immigrants came over here and the St. Patrick's at that time was Irish, and they weren't as quite as flexible as they are today. So the Italians, first of all, wanted a priest that could speak Italian, but they didn't have one. Second of all, the Italians weren't used to the, what was called the expected donation. Their attitude was like, hey, look, I come over here. The church is supposed to help me. They're always asking for money. What is this? And thirdly, the Italians wanted to make a big festival on the, the birthday of the, of the saints, right? And the, the, the attitude of the, how you say, St. Patrick's right then was, look, this is a church, it's not party time. You know, we're not going to sponsor it. You want to have a festival, have it, but we're not going to sponsor it. So this all led the Italians to, to, to sell, believe it or not, the, con the community themselves chipped in the money to build the Church of the Most Pleasure Bread so they could have their own church. And by the way, just one funny side note was that what St. Patrick's did was they told the, the Italians, uh, look, if you want a priest that speaks Italian, and you don't want to expect a donation, we have special services for you in the basement. And they got tired of going into the basement, you know? 
So how large was the Italian population during its height, would you say? I know I've seen all sorts of different numbers about that. Now, I've seen one set of numbers that said, they gave me the numbers for New York City. And you gotta say the largest part of all of these numbers would have been here, right? But we're talking about, how would you say, the five boroughs? And uh, we'd say like in 1860s, I forgot the number, it was really small. 1880, there was about 20,000. By 1900, there were 220,000. By 1910, there was 545,000. And I added them very few, very few registered to vote. They were very clannish, and they stuck to themselves, you know, and they didn't bother with institutions. And one of the reasons for that was because when the Italians came over here, believe it or not, they didn't come over here with the idea to stay. Whatever they say now, their idea was to make some money and go back home, you know, to Italy, the song, the song, the sea, or whatever you want to call it. But the, most of them stayed because here where the money was, you know. But most of them come over were men, you know, maybe 20 to 30 percent were women, but most were men. And the idea was to go back home. So they didn't get involved in politics or public institutions that much in the beginning. I'm talking about the first 50 years or so. Whereas the Irish, when they came over here, they were political right from the beginning. I mean, right when they got off the boat, they went right in and registered as voters, you know. Uh, that's why the, the, the Irish assimilated a lot quicker than the Italians. It took a few generations. So how did those early Italians make their money here oh, in this the area? Same way the Irish did. They built the, built the buildings, the streets. There were laborers, uh, construction workers, you know. But they also worked in the garment district. But that was another difference between the, the Irish and the Italians. Most of the Irish families, you know, they tell the women, like, go out and get a job. Make yourself useful, you know. The Italians say, your place is in the home. Stay here. I don't want you here. You make the spaghetti for me and the family, you know. So basically, a lot of what the Italian women got stuck with doing, they did a lot of garment district work in the house, though. Those houses, those apartments here were turned into manufacturing. So the poor ladies had to work 9 to 10 hours a day, you know, on garments. Meantime, take care of the kids, cook the food, and take care of the old man. <laughs> when did the Italian restaurants, the bakeries, start to open up here well, in this neighborhood? Here, almost like by 1900, you started to have them here. In 1926, you had the first feast of St. Gennaro. It happened on Mulberry Street. What's the history of that feast? Well, it's St. Gennaro, I think that's the best way to pronounce it, is an Italian saint. He was uh, martyred in 3005 A.D. Basically, he's, his blood supposed to liquefy once a year at least. And if it doesn't liquefy, the town in Italy is in trouble. Bad things happen. Suppose it's the rumor. That's why they call it the Church of the Most precious blood. They had the statue there of St. Gennaro, and they had the feast, the procession, they carried the statue up Mulberry Street. Uh, by the way, <laughs> it's sort of ironic, but uh, it started out with a group of uh, cafe owners, and then it soon got taken over by people outside the neighborhood, if you will, but who really organized the feast initially up until 1990 with uh, the Church of the Most Precious Blood. There's a little modern building in back, and that's where they used to meet. They had the committee. When I say organize it, they used to get everybody together and, and submit their applications for permits to sell, how you say, food on the street, you know, for a certain amount of time and to close the street off in traffic. And they used to do business with the city and negotiate the permits, you know. In 1990s, when Giuliani came in, now Giuliani's Italian, and only he could get away with it. But he took it away from the St. Gennaro and gave it to a private, I think Mort Berkowitz is the name of the guy, 
as a private contractor to, to arrange it because he said that there were too many mafia influences in it and there were mishandling of money and stuff like that. That always happens when you put the mafia in there. You know, somehow money always disappears. I don't know why. But at any rate, that's, uh, and I would say, and he did, the way he did it, we would say, you could say like, well, look, it's up to the church. They could use you know, whoever they want. How could the mayor tell them what to do? Very easy. What the mayor said was, look, he changed the city ordinance. The law said, if you're selling food, you want to get a permit to sell the food on the street, you can't get a permit in this city if you're connected to organized crime or if anybody in your family is connected. In other words, if you've got a cousin, a nephew, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister that's connected to organized crime, you can't, it's illegal for you to get a permit. So that, that knocked out everybody, you know? Nobody was left after that. And if anybody else would have tried that, I mean, you wouldn't have got away with it. Because if you stop and think, that's really not... It's not right. I mean, look, my brother killed somebody. Don't blame me. I don't even like the guy, I could say, you know? But he got away with it. Nobody criticized him for it because he was Italian. And the Italians were really proud that they had an Italian mayor, you know? And he was good. I mean, he was very much anti-crime and against the mafia. Ironically, though, there's one ironic part here. And ironically, he had, a, I think it was a cousin in Brooklyn who shot it out with the FBI. So if he wanted to, he couldn't get a permit to sell food on the street. Not that he would ever want to, under his own laws, right? There's irony there, yes. Yeah, yeah that's what you... Just how strong were the mob ties in this neighborhood? Oh, God, are you kidding me? Uh, they were strong. John Gotti used to, had the Raven Eye Social Club right here on uh, Mulberry Street, right off Prince, you know? And he used to come down here like twice, uh, at least twice a week and talk to his goombas. And one of them was Gravino. He's the guy that turned state's evidence on, on Gotti, which is another sort of interesting story. You know the story why uh, Gavino turned state's evidence? Uh, Gavino was a like Gotti. Both of them were like what you would call gangster to the bone. I mean, these guys lived and breathed crime and mafia. The thing was that Gavino was almost, set, well, maybe you might say second in command, but he was second in command, you see? Now, Gavino had the habit. Now, he, he was responsible for, he admitted at least 20 murders. 20 murders he's responsible for now. Now the thing was, Garino, whenever he got money, he took most of it and put it into legitimate businesses. And to prove that there's no justice in this world, his businesses always did well, okay? So I tell you, if, uh, I, you there's no justice, right? His dirty money did very well in, in private enterprise. He turned out that he was making more money than Gotti. But Gotti couldn't really, I mean, it wasn't from Gotti's sources, stuff from his own private things, you know? And Gotti, they were, ta the FBI was taping Gotti because he was a Teflon Don. And that was another side note to that was that they, uh, what people say is that the other bosses, because there's five families now, Gotti was the head of one of the five families. The other families really despised him because he was so public. And because he was so public, that brings heat on everybody. And supposedly they wanted to kill him. The only thing was they couldn't because the FBI was following them 24-7. And the FBI had that, that club, they had it monitored. They heard every point they said. Now the thing was, I've heard that the, the, the tapes were inferior quality, that's why it wasn't clear. Another story I heard was that these racket guys, they always talk in the, how you say, in the wrong vernacular. Like, in other words, yeah, you know, we do the Joey, what we did the Mo, yeah, but we do it right, you know what I mean? And they go like this, and they know what they're talking about. We'll whack the guy. Well, I said I was going to whack him. I mean, just smack him in the head. I don't mean I was going to kill him. You know? they, it was hard to take those tapes 
the way they existed wasn't transferable over to legitimate evidence in the courtroom. That's why he beat so many raps before the last one. What happened was, on the last time he got busted, it was actually, it was right here on Mulberry Street. I got a picture of him coming out of the club. Um, how would you say? Uh, in court, they were playing these tapes, and they were sort of like I, the way I described. But Gravino was in court right next to Gotti, you know? And he heard Gotti saying things like, you know, that guy is number two. What's he thinking, number one? He's making more money than me. What is this? But, you know, along those lines, and after a while, Gravino got the idea that Gotti was looking to whack him. So, once he, once he realized from, those, from Gotti's own mouth, mind you, what this was going to be, he turned states on Gotti. And he put him away. And Gotti died 10 years later, how he did cancer inside the can. Today, Little Italy is only a mere few blocks, but how big it's an once illusion. it was? That's what it, it is. <laughs> it's an illusion. Little Italy used to run, actually, believe it or not, used to start at Bleecker Street and went all the way down to Duane Street. That includes the Five Points area, too, you know. Uh, so what, a 50-block radius, would you say? I don't know. I never counted the blocks. But on the other, on the east and west boundaries, you would, you would have, like, uh, Baxter Street, uh, Crosby Street, like that, you know. And then Houston, or Bleecker, actually, Bleecker Street. It went one block over to Bleecker Street, really. At one time, you know, if you went back to the early 1900s, up in the, yeah. When they're actually getting smaller and smaller. What I like to say is Chinatown's invading from the south, and no leader is invading from the north. And in between, we're going to get some Chinese boutiques. When did the Chinese start moving into this area? 50s, 60s, 70s, gradually. But Chinatown's been there for a long before that. We're talking about when you said moved in, you mean move into the area that's above Canal Street. They were below Canal Street for a long time. They had a presence. Uh, below, usually below Canal Street and uh, west of Mott Street. Where did the Italians go? Oh, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx. Are you Italian? I am Italian, yeah, yeah part Italian. Italian. What are you asking me for? You know where they went. Well, my family moved from Harlem to the Bronx. Okay, that I was there. I East Harlem for a long time, for about 10 years. Yeah, I lived on 108th Street and 1st Avenue. Pleasant Avenue wasn't far from me. I used to work in Thomas Jefferson Park. I was a supervisor there. Yeah, you have a history in the Parks Department. Yes, I was a supervisor for the New York City Parks Department for many years. I worked there for 25 years. So how did you transition from that role in the Parks Department to becoming a tour guide in New York City? Oh, it was a natural transition. In fact, they almost forced me, you might say, in a way, because what happened was I always had an interest in architecture and in buildings, especially new buildings, old buildings, what was here before, that type of thing. And what happened was that I used to try and talk to other supervisors about that, and they would roll their eyes. They're not interested, right? But what happened was over years, I'm talking about a period of years go by now, these same guys that, you know, not too interested in this... Who tap me. A lot of times they come look me up and say, Hey, Freddie, you know those, those buildings you're always talking about? Well, I got people visiting me. Will you take them and show them this neighborhood or take them and show them that or tell them about that? And that's what started me doing it, actually. And then after a while, I started to, how you say, accumulate more and more information. I used to have folders about different neighborhoods. And uh, what happened is, uh, I guess when I retired in 1990, I just started doing it full time. I went and got my license as a Licensed New York City guide, and uh, I just started doing it full-time. What's your favorite tour to lead? My favorite tour is the Midtown Architectural Tour. Uh, because that's such a wide variety. I like architecture. That's my interest, you know. I like uh, as many diverse styles of architecture. People would be surprised. Everything from modern uh, to postmodern. It has even an example of deconstructivism. 
It has buildings that are, how do you say, historically styled, nice, beautiful, Art Deco, uh, French Second Empire. There's uh, churches. There's a, a landmark uh, synagogue. Also, there's a house that dates back to 1876, actually, from one family house. It shows you what it looked like back then. So it has a wide range of architectural styles, and that's my favorite tour. You do my a gargoyle favorite. tour. Oh, yes, yes. That's very. That's actually probably the most popular tour, the gargoyle tour. Although somebody, they're giving it for free now. You don't have to pay me anything, but they're, they are offering it for free. But uh, I do gargoyles. It's not as good as mine, though, I'll tell you that right now, because I got pictures of the gargoyles close up. But uh, uh, that's the Madison Square area. If you take the long uh, three-hour version, it takes the Madison Square and Gramercy Park. If you take the two-hour version, which I recommend, it's a two-hour tour. And I talk about the gargoyles, but I talk about the history of the area, too. What was there before, how it developed. You know, Madison Square Garden was right on that site, too, at one time. The original Madison Square Garden, where Stanford White was shot and killed by the jealous husband type of thing. And, but I show you there are a number of gargoyles. It has a lot of interesting architecture. And Madison Square Park, before that, uh, the Knickerbockers were there. That was the first baseball team we used to play in that playground. So it has a wide, varied history, yes. How did this neighborhood evolve in terms of architecture? Not too much. <laughs> uh, that's, this neighborhood, uh, my, one of my favorite neighborhoods for neighbors would really be the West Village. This neighborhood just has a lot of tenements in it, you know. There's some newer buildings, and some of the buildings are kept very well. And if you go into the Noe Leader end, you'll see a lot of shops, uh, high-end shops. This neighborhood, I don't know. You look around, what do you think of the architecture? Well, it looks like, well, this building here on the corner that's of nice Mott and Broom is a nice tenement building. Yes. And there are some of them quite all night. There's a tenement building on uh, Broom Street. Is that Broom Street here? Yeah, there's a tenement that has Moses up there. In fact, that's it right there. See? Up there, you see Moses? Oh, yeah, I do. Under, under a stone There was a Moses. Jewish architect. He put Moses up on top of the building. And he got a six-point star up there. That doesn't mean Jewish people were in the tenement. But it doesn't mean they weren't there either. Because there were, lot, there were a number of Jewish people here in Little Italy while the Italians were here. So, you know, it's sort of... Um, so a bit of a misnomer that it was solely an Italian neighborhood. Right. It was a diverse neighborhood. It was a diverse neighborhood. But there were blocks where, you know, you, you couldn't turn around without bumping into an Italian. Did they settle here regionally like they did back home? So the Sicilians were here, those from Naples were here in this yeah. neighborhood. And sometimes they couldn't even understand each other. They had different dialects. And believe it or not, one dialect sometimes really wouldn't understand you know, what the other guy had a different... That was, uh, there's a Petrosino Square out there. Speaking of Petrosino, that is named after Joseph Petrosino, who yeah. helped to bring down the mob, right? He was a law oh. enforcement officer. Yeah, he tried his best, just put it like that. He, put, he locked up a hundred to them and never made a dent. Petrosino was a, they called him the cop with the derby or something like that. He used to always wear a little, he was well known for a derby and he had double, because he was a short guy. And uh, he went undercover. Now, sometimes people wonder, like, if you know the cop has got a derby on, you know he's a short guy, how the hell could he go undercover? Well, the reason why he got away with it was because he spoke all the different dialects. He could go into any block, and he fit right in like he belonged there. He spoke every dialect fluently, so he just fitted right in, and he found out everything that was happening, you know? And uh, he was so good at it that Teddy Roosevelt, who was police commissioner 1895, 1896, promoted him to lieutenant. He's the guy that gave him his boost up, made him a lieutenant, and made him the head of the Italian squad. And they busted, I don't know how many hundreds of Italians. And he went after 
he went to, he might say if you had that point of view you might say he went after his own almost exclusively he, tooth and nail and he was a big hero i mean the good italians liked him the bad italians hated him well, you know what his downfall was what was that he, got, he died real young too he decided that we're never going to solve the problem with the bad guys over here that they were importing them importing them from italy so he went to italy he went to Sicily, no less. God, he lasted for a week over there. They killed him. Huh. And he was a big. There was a big parade. Thousands of Italians showed up, and to mourn his passing, you know. And that's where Petrosino Square is sort of celebrating. And not far from there, not far from there is the original NYPD headquarters, right? Which is now a condo complex. Yes, it is, and it isn't. Okay. Yes, that's one. That's on Center Street. You're talking about. And it's beautiful. A lot of celebrities, um, models went in there, and several very famous people. I can't bring their names to mind right at this moment. The thing was that was built in 1907. And what happened was you got to know that if you go back to 1898, there were five, Manhattan was Manhattan was New York City, and the rest were boroughs or counties. And in 1898, they incorporated the five boroughs into Manhattan. That gave rise to the need for one central police headquarters. Before that, the police headquarters was on Mulberry Street, by the way, right off Bleecker. That's where Teddy Roosevelt was. That police headquarters building was the first one for the five boroughs. But you had other ones before that were just for Manhattan, which was New York City. Uh, that's a beautiful building. It's sort of English Baroque or Renaissance. If you want architecture, you go there and look. Some books call it a Renaissance Revival, which is just an umbrella term. English Baroque is a little more precise. But yes, that's a good example of architecture here. St. Patrick's Cathedral is a very bad example of architecture. Uh, and one of the reasons is that that's not the original St. Patrick's. I got pictures of what the original St. Patrick's looked like because they burnt down actually in 1867, I think it was. And that's a new facade in the front. That's not, doesn't know my own. The original, guess what? The original building was designed by Francis Magin, M-A-G-I-N. And he was an African-American French architect. And he's the guy that designed City Hall along with another architect, yes. And that's, which is another rarity. Before we started rolling today, you told me about a home, an old home here yes, in the neighborhood. Yes, yes. That's, uh, that's uh, Stephen. Van Resler near home. It's on Mulberry Street uh, between Grand and Hester, and it's on the west side of the street. It's still standing there. It's a New York City landmark, a national landmark. It was built in 1816. It was worth about thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars at the time, and it was quite. It was considered to be a nice middle-income house, you know. And Van Resler is, believe it or not, is a very prominent name in New York City politics and history. The Van, their family owns a good part of upstate New York at one time. And Stephen Van Ransley, who built that house, may very well never have lived in it. He just might have built it as, you know, where he rented it out to people. It was built in 1816. By 1900, it was an Italian bookstore in there. You know, and now you can see, now there's got what they call a pop-up in there. Whatever, you know. Yeah, one of the pop-up shops. Yes, that's what's in there now. But if you walk there, the house is still there. You can see it's, it's a federal-style house, but it's large. It's large enough to accommodate, uh, for the time, a fairly well-to-do family. Not well-to-do like an Astor, but like well-to-do like a middle-class person. 
Little Italy today is home to a museum of Italian-Americans. Yes. That was once a bank, yeah, am I right? The Stabile Bank, yes, oh yes. And if you look at the front door, they've got the name Stabile right over it. And there are some buildings here that still have Stabile on it. They say the Stabile family at one time owned half of Little Italy. And supposedly, and I shouldn't even put that in there, supposedly, they were not connected to the Mafia. They stood clear, or they tried very hard to anyway. Uh, the Sabeel family came over here around 1865, and they opened up a bank. 1885, they were chartered by New York State as a bank. I, I like to say, I joke about it, especially if I have Italian people, that it took them 20 years to get legitimate. That's what happens with Italians. They take, take their time. They don't jump into legitimacy too quick. But at any rate, uh, they were that bank was operative until um, 1930s. During the Depression, it was taken over by a larger financial institution, an Italian financial institution. And supposedly their depositors didn't lose any money because the other bank covered it. What piece of history in this neighborhood do you like to share most that surprises most people, would you say? Uh, what I like, how would you say, you have a church there that started out as an Episcopal church. Uh, it was more mixed than most people like to do it. And I like to sort of try and dispel that neighbor, that thing. I'm not saying that it, it wasn't very predominantly Italian. There were blocks you walked down here that would look like there was nothing but Italians, you know. And you would see the occasional chicken or sometimes even larger animals kept here. But there were other people having hard times and living through the same thing at the same time. And uh, that's what I like to bring to consciousness more than anything else. Alfred, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Alfred Palmer is a New York City tour guide. More about his tours at nycwalk.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Podarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. And thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.